When politicians, journalists, academics, and others speak of the 2003 war in Iraq, they often speak in numbers. The money it cost, the estimated number of people killed and injured, the number of foreign troops stationed there, and so on. But for Iraqis, the conversation is often about what cannot be measured in numbers. The immense sense of loss, the dashed hopes, the trauma of compounded crises that predate the 2003 war, including the Iraq-Iran war, sanctions, dictatorship, and more. They sometimes speak of their own personal experience, while others feel what they experienced pales in significance when compared to what others have lost. I'm joined by Ali Safbar, who is one of the preeminent experts on energy and energy transitions. And while Ali could speak at length about the energy dilemma in Iraq, he's speaking with me today in a personal capacity, on a manner close to his heart, his father. Ali's father, Ammar Safar, was kidnapped on November 19, 2006, at the height of killings, kidnappings, and civil unrest three years after the Iraq War. He is presumed dead, but little is known about him since that fateful day. Ali, thank you for spending some time and speaking to me. Thank you very much, Mina. Ali, tell us about your father. Well, I mean, uh, the, the way I choose to remember him, the kind of most salient memories I have of, of my father is just his his very kind spirit. He was always a smiling guy, even, uh, you know, uh, even after he was kidnapped, the one thing that people would always kind of come to us and say is that he was very kind to them. He was very down to earth, very, um, just a, a, a very nice person to have around. Um, he always lifted a mood when he went, went into the room. We all tend to put fathers on pedestals and parents on pedestals, but he was somebody that I would aspire to become like because he was just honest and fundamentally good. Um, and that's the way I would always look uh, to to view him. And he and your family were in exile up until 2003. And then he decided to go back to Iraq. So tell us about that decision and what he aspired to do there. Yeah, as, as you can tell from uh, probably the stories of most uh, exiles you may have spoken to, it was a, it was a strange time back in 2003 because Nobody wants to see their country attacked. And you know that uh, war isn't going to be messy and nothing is going to end up the way it's supposed to. Um, but at the same time, you know, my, my father was in exile because he was in, in opposition to Saddam for, for decades. And of course, you know, we didn't want that regime to, to continue. And so it was this, it was this kind of tense time. Um, you know, we, were, we did oppose the war. Um, both he and I marched in London in that uh, that huge rally before the 2003 war. Um, but when when it became inevitable, uh, I think it was also inevitable that he would go back. It had been decades since uh, he could go back to Iraq, uh, and uh, he went almost as soon as as he could after the war started. Um, he didn't have any uh, plans. Uh, what when he did? I mean, it was you know mostly to to see family that he hadn't seen in so so long, uh, but you know, as it became uh, clear what would happen after the war, kind of that first phase of the war ended, he decided to stay on with many of the people that he was in exile with, uh, and try to see uh, what role he could play, um, given his experiences in 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 London. And he then became a deputy minister. 
He became a deputy minister somewhat incidentally, yes. So as things started to solidify after that first phase of the war, they needed uh, basically people to run administrations. His background in London was as somebody who has run. He was an administrative person. He had good organizational skills. Um, he worked in London in companies where he where these skills were kind of honed. And it wasn't a massive uh, pool of people to pick from back in the day as well. So he landed in the Ministry of Health at a time when uh, the state had effectively been collapsed. Uh, it didn't collapse by itself, but it was almost, you know, there was something quite deliberate there and was tasked with trying to kind of reconstruct that part of of an essential uh, ministry in Iraq. Now, what he found there was a sector that had been neglected for decades. There was, of course, war, but before that, there was over a decade of sanctions, which had really decimated public services and, and health, really primarily primary among them. But I remember back in those early days, I went to visit in 2003 and I went to visit in 2004. The feeling that I uh, got was that apart from kind of the, the decay of buildings and infrastructure, it was clear that something quite sinister was happening in, in the Ministry of, of Health. And uh, I mean, you know, my, my father went back in 2003. He, he was kidnapped in 2006, as you mentioned. And the aging that I saw, the physical aging that I saw in that short time was stark. Uh, and he wouldn't complain much, but it was very, very clear to me that there was stuff way beyond um, his capabilities in the ministry, uh, happening in the Ministry of, of Health. And I almost felt like it kind of, it broke his heart because he, you know, wanted to go to Iraq, go back home uh, and, you know, he'd struggled in opposition for so long and then he came and saw a reality that uh, probably didn't meet his expectations at all but he was a real idealist and this is you know you asked me to describe my dad he was such an idealist he could always see the best in people and uh, I think that was ultimately what didn't really serve him so well uh, in the end because even in 2006 when things were getting extremely messy he maintained kind of that philosophy of if I am good, then good things will happen to me. If I see the good in people, then, you know, good things will happen. And I think that also explains why he was such an easy target. Because of the fact that unlike quite a few people that went uh, back to Iraq or started to, to have positions of authority in Iraq, he didn't really, he wasn't interested at all in these vestiges of power. You know, the 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 bodyguards and the uh, the home in the in, in the green zone they were all available to him but to his last day he was in our family home in in Hay al Maghrib in Adamiya it was you know it was my grandmother's house he lived with his mother and his uh, two sisters and it was a, it was easy pickings in the end it was very very simple for those who uh, eventually kidnapped him to do so and i think that that was probably the kind of downside of his idealism this was eff effectively what happened on the 19th of november you know, what you describe about your father, the idealism, the wanting to go back and rebuild the country, those who were already in the country who wanted to, you know, pull up their sleeves and try to build a better future. And while 2003 felt quite like rock bottom, it felt like things would get better. And yet, in some ways, they got worse. And then centers of power, corruption, 
uh, vested interests all started to get compounded and became impossible for people who actually wanted to serve the country and be in positions of power for public service rather than for accumulating wealth. Those people were targeted. We had in 2005, 2006, 2007, kidnappings, killings, targeted assassinations. In addition to the terrible suicide bombings and the sectarian killing that was happening, there was a concentrated campaign to take out professionals. Because with professionals, with a civil service that actually would function, you couldn't have gotten the rot that would set in. And I think that's one of the the biggest losses that Iraq suffered from then and continues to suffer from in some way now. So I want to ask you where you were when you heard of your father's kidnapping and what those immediate days were like. They were horrible. I was I was in London. I remember it was a Sunday morning uh, and I was at my, my parents' house in, in London. I used to live with my mother. And she, she kind of came into my room half in a daze, in a slight disbelief. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't yelling. It wasn't screaming. It wasn't crying. It was just, it was like uh, somebody in, in shock. Um, and she came to me and she said, uh, Ali, they're saying they kidnapped your father. And obviously, you know, it, the risks were, were, were clear to us that this could happen. But, uh, but she had basically had a, a phone call from a family friend in London who'd heard it. So this was before it was on the news. And it was a, just a, a really horrible, horrible time. I mean, as you know, Mina, November in London is already a depressing time of year. Um, and then you add to that, you know, just the, it was just, a, it was dark, it was gloomy. The next days after that, I don't know, um, it's, it's a bit of a haze, but at the same time, I just felt like something innate kind of kicked in where you're just like, okay, we need to survive this. We need to think clearly. We, think, we need to understand what's happening here. The big struggle was trying to get information out of Iraq. Because we were outside of the country, you know, we weren't getting all of the, the information that people back home were getting, that, the, that even parts of our family back home were getting. They weren't relaying it very efficiently. So we were scrambling um, and we were on the phone all the time. Uh, Scotland Yard, the, the British security services basically came to our house, gave us um, almost like a crash course in what we need to do if the kidnappers called us, uh, what we need to say, how to keep them on the phone, what questions we need to ask. But it was a truly horrible time. And the way this kidnapping happened is it was, you, you realized that they had honed their skills to such a degree. Um, essentially, they, they're, they're there to create confusion. They don't make you lose hope from day one. They want to string you along in the hope that the, 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 the kidnapped victim is alive for as long as possible. And we had that for years. And so we received a video, a hostage video or a, a kidnapped video. I think it was on the second or third day. It was uh, staged, you know, um, he was talking about, uh, my, my father was talking about the civil war, almost an insinuation that this is part of kind of the sectarian violence. We knew for a fact that it wasn't part of the sectarian violence. It wasn't a sectarian motivation behind his kidnapping, that it was linked more to, to, the, uh, to what was going on in the Ministry of Health, which wasn't a sectarian thing. It was a corruption thing. And so that was the first video. We, then we started getting calls from his phone, from his mobile phone, which they had taken with them, um, basically saying, please give us uh, a list of the medication he needs. So we, you know, that would fill us with optimism because it was like, okay, if they're taking care of him to this degree, then they must want to release him. You know, he had high blood pressure. 
he was kind of pre-diabetic, etc. So I remember I still have I still have the, the the copy of the prescription, kind of a scan on on my on my Dropbox. But we went to his general practitioner, got that, sent it over. It turns out that this is all part of a ruse that the kidnappers have. Some of these gangs are basically in business with one another. So what they would do is they would, you know, one person has a motive. They would sell the phone of the victim to another gang in the hope that they can, you know, that gang can then extort money out of you. The primary gang can do whatever they want with their victim. But it's, it's, it's much more elaborate than one would expect if they haven't been through this. And so we got these calls. They they kept us kind of hanging. We we had hope. We had quite a lot of hope in the in in the first days, and uh, and it was just basically spent like that, just trying to wean information on what had happened, what was going to happen, but always just feeling in the lurch um, most of the time as well. Uh, it was a really dark days, and and uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's interesting you say, Ali, about those who tried to paint it as a sectarian issue when really it was about corruption. So much of what happened in Iraq uh, is, is often painted in the wrong light, either for lack of nuance, lack of interest, or because it's politically motivated to push it in a certain direction. And part of that actually tore up Iraqi society because people started to use sectarian terminology to talk about issues that were really either political, gangster style, mafia style, corruption, and so forth. But, you know, and that's part of the the trauma and, and the, the breakdown that happened in security and life and society in Iraq. But your particular story and the story of those who are disappeared is of a particular trauma because you, at what point do you accept that your loved one is never going to come back when you actually don't know what happened. So how do you deal with that? And, and the issue of the disappeared as such in Iraq, of course, predates the 2003 war. The ICRC estimates that up to a million people in Iraq have been disappeared. And again, this predates 2003 and continued after 2003. It's difficult to put a hierarchy on pain or suffering, Mina, and I don't want to go down that avenue. But the disappeared are a particular kind of trauma. Uh, because, you know, I mean, obviously I went through this and I also lost a lot of family members to to violence um, in that post-2003 period, of course, like everybody did. Um, but the disappeared, the, the lack of closure is something that is really difficult to come to terms with. Um, it, it manifests itself in, in a number of ways. I mean, if you knew the person had died, if you knew where they died, if you had a grave, that would be some form of closure. You know, not knowing what happened in those final moments, not having anywhere to visit just to kind of commemorate, to memorialize, is, is quite difficult in itself. Like, uh, it just manifests itself in the strangest ways because, you know, I, I told you my father was kidnapped on the 19th of November. If you ask me what is the date of my father's, the, the, the anniversary of my father's death, I wouldn't know what to say, right? I don't know when he died. Was it the 19th or did they keep him alive for a while? I don't know. And then it just comes up in, in, in day-to-day, like, you know, in, day, in day-to-day interactions as well. You know, when people say, oh, where are your parents? I say, yeah, my mom's living in London. They say, okay, and your father? He didn't die. He was killed. Died. To say he died is far too passive. But I don't want to get into that in a day-to-day interaction. Just three days ago, my, my five-year-old was asking me, you know, how did Jiddu die? And I said, I said, well, you know, he just did. And he says, was he old? No, he wasn't old. Was he sick? No, he wasn't sick. 
but I don't want to traumatize my five-year-old either. And I, but I can't bring it upon myself to just lie either because, uh, because it just takes away from, from what really happened. So it's this really weird day-to-day reminders of this kind of trauma. And what worries me, I mean, you know, as an Iraqi meaning yourself, you know the intensity of the traumas that Iraqis have suffered, because as you mentioned, it's like multi-decade. And it was war, it was sanction, it was civil war, it was a whole bunch of things that have just compounded on one another. But what worries me is the disappeared, because they are open sores. At the societal level, they're basically open sores that have not healed. And I don't get the sense that there's been any sort of concerted effort to bring closure to the families of those people that have been disappeared. I just want the truth. I just want to know when my father was killed. I want a grave. Mina, it is the strangest thing in the world to go to a funeral and think, uh, you know, in a, in a way you're kind of lucky because you can commemorate this person properly, you know? You know that this person was given the proper burial rights. This person was, was respected. You know, I've never been envious of anybody in my life, but to be envious of somebody who's suffered loss, that is the strangest thing in, in the world. You know, Ali, I, I remember when news of your father's kidnapping came. And it was a time in London, I was also living in London then. Uh, a few months before that, my cousin had been killed, uh, also as part of taking out of professionals in Iraq. But I remember, as you said, that when we heard of people being kidnapped, and of course your father was the most high-profile, let's say, story, but it was also somebody who was well-known in, in, in London society amongst Iraqis. He was a well-known figure, very well-respected and loved. There was a sense of where are we going? Because if somebody like him could be kidnapped and there is no accountability, to your point, and then years drag on and a story like this doesn't come to a conclusion, then the country has to, has to live with that. Society has to live with that. And here we are marking 20 years on from the war and looking to the future can we look to a stable, a prosperous future for Iraq with these questions still hanging? And if not, what's the solution? The one thing that gives me some optimism, and I was checking this this morning, is that 60% of the Iraqi population is under the age of 25, right? And so most of the people, the majority of people in Iraq were born after 2003. So the hope there is that if there's any sort of sustained peace in Iraq going forward, five, ten years of sustained peace, then hopefully the collective memory of society stops being trauma and starts being something a bit more normal. I'm not saying that basic services are going to be perfect. I'm not saying that suddenly we're going to live in a utopian society. But if at least if at least the the majority of the of of people don't have a traumatic DNA or a, uh, trauma isn't in their, in their lived existence to such a degree, then maybe that's more conducive to, to a society that, is, that can move forward, that can function normally in, in inverted commas. So that's the one bit. So demographics effectively is my only source of hope. It's also one of my greatest fears because honestly, if the population is that young and there's no room for, for employment or space, to operate in a kind of functioning, well-run society, then that could come to backfire quite badly as well. But if we can make 
in your uh, the collective memory one of just normalcy rather than trauma, then maybe good things can happen. Ali, that's a good note to to end on. I appreciate you speaking to me and taking the time. And may your father's soul rest in peace. And may your son have a bright future. Thank you so much, Mina. The story of Ali and his father captures the losses on a personal level that many in Iraq have suffered. The specific and personal stories come together to shape an entire society as countries' histories are written by individual stories like these. In the next episode of The Iraq War, 20 Years On, I discuss how this war came about and its impact not only on Iraq, but on America and its place in the world. This episode is one of a four-part series mapping the Iraq War of 2003. Please listen to all four episodes on thenationalnews.com and major podcast providers.